electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast. It's official. The CDC recommends a COVID vaccine for your kids. A tiny jab for a big impact with former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. If you vaccinate 1 million children between the ages of 5 and 11, you'll avoid about 53,000 hospitalizations. You'll avoid about 75 ICU admissions. And election day results are in. The 110th mayor for the city of New York, Eric L. Adams. The new mayor himself on his plans for the Big Apple. If we want to be progressive in our policies, we must be practical and help people on the ground clean our streets, pick up our garbage, educate our children, and have a safe city that we can build on. It's Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Today is the first Wednesday after the first Tuesday in November, election day morning after, even on and off year. New Jersey and Virginia voters went to the polls in highly watched governor's races. At the time of our Squawk Box TV broadcast today, New Jersey's race was still too close to call, with incumbent Democrat Phil Murphy Greetings from Asbury Park! Still hopeful he could pull out a win. Well, we're going to have to wait a little while longer than we had hoped. We're going to wait for every vote to be counted, and that's how our democracy works. In Virginia, Republican Glenn Youngkin is projected to win the race after a heated campaign against former Governor Terry McAuliffe. The former Carlisle Group co-CEO has over 50% of the vote, with about 99% of ballots counted. Alrighty, Virginia, we won this thing! And this race has been one to watch. White women voters in Virginia swung 15 percentage points towards Youngkin attributed in large part to the candidate's focus on school curriculum and giving more power to parents. We are empowered. We're empowered by a conviction, a righteous conviction in our children's future. We're strengthened by our collective belief in the Virginia promise. So let's climb that hill together. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin take it from here. And I think there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to look at Glenn Youngkin not just in terms of what this means for the country right now, but also how he won, um, how, how he appealed to, to um, both uh, what might be described as Trump Republicans, maybe more center-right Republicans. I mean, he, he sort of ran the gamut and he did it in a sort of unique way. And the question is whether that will become uh, a model, perhaps, for uh, for larger politics well, around cer- the country. Certainly in a, in a state that runs runs blue for the most part. You know, it's well, a, it a was bluish a, it purple was state. Lieutenant Gen- uh, General and Attorney General, uh, too, or Lieutenant Governor, I'm sorry, and Attorney General, uh, a clean sweep down there. I think the legislature, 
uh, too. It was pointed out that, that Youngkin, and, and, and just in watching, he did run a happy campaign. But it's kind of easy to be happy when, it, for the last 10 days, it's been sort of clear that the momentum shifted his way. He's like, whoa! I mean, I, you know, he had a smile on his face. And, and, and conversely, you could see McAuliffe get kind of defensive and, uh, it, it, you know, I don't know. That's just the way it appeared to me. It seemed like an unhappy uh, uh, campaign from the other side. And it was pointed out yesterday that, that there was. I like his vest. I wore a vest in uh, today. I don't have a red one uh, like that. We will change the trajectory of this commonwealth. And friends, we are going to start that transformation on day one. I voted yesterday, and uh, they <laughs> they had little stickers that they put. I voted. I, I put to. four. I put four of them on <laughs> just to just to mess with people. My, my son got I mean? to because he voted with me, and then he voted yeah. with. Did Matt you put too. them both on? Did you I put, put them both, both on. on. Yeah. I go. Yeah, early and often, baby. Uh, early and often, making my voice heard. Uh, didn't ask me for uh, for anything, and they, they and it's funny because when they asked me where I lived, they didn't say where do you live. They said do you live at, and I was like. Oh, they That's asked me. Not, they made me confirm. They said, where do you did? live? They did? Yeah. They, where do you live? Give us your address. You know what? I think they... Well, of course, I, they, I live in such a small town that it's my neighbors I, who are yeah, running this. Yeah, they probably this, so they knew know. me. They probably knew who I was. Probably, from all the autograph signing and pictures and everything else that was there. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. The 110th mayor for the city of New York, Eric L. We're going to talk to the CEOs of our city's biggest corporations and ask them to offer paid internships to students from undeserved communities. We have to get this out of our head, that our CEOs in this city don't want to participate in the uplifting of our inner city. The problem is we haven't gone there and asked them to do so. So it's time to build bridges that we've destroyed in the past. We need each other. Meanwhile, in New York, the mayoral race, we, I think we knew this outcome, but it's now official. Democrat uh, Eric Adams projected to defeat uh, the GOP candidate, Curtis Huila. And uh, he had made headlines yesterday, we should say, because he sparred with some poll workers about whether uh, he could bring one of his cats into the election site. They couldn't point to any of their rules that suggested that pets are not allowed. And if you notice, they weren't even smart enough to leave the sign up because there are probably other people coming with their pets. So they take it down thinking, what, I'm a schmuck? Uh, then his <laughs> ballot jammed in the machine, which had to be repaired. And um, I don't know if we're going to talk about that later with Eric Adams, but uh, the mayor will be with us. You know, when you think about just politics across the country. And if you think that things are moving more towards um, away from, from certain things, it, interestingly, I mean, we've been talking about progressive, progressives on the, uh, on, on the left. I, I think, in a, in a way, Youngkin's uh, sort of a middle ground guy. And I would argue that Eric Adams is actually uh, a middle ground for his party. So maybe things are Yeah, it's are interesting that to, Eric Adams move in these directions. Is, is hitting you know, financial networks like this. I've, I've, I've seen kind of the rounds that he's going to be making this morning. And it, it, it's a little different than you would have expected 
from his predecessor. Well, Eric you know. said, I don't want Wall Street guys leaving. I, we, yeah. he, he was unabashedly. Oh, uh, Eric, no, Eric is, cares about out. the business community. He yeah. cares about pe- keeping people in the city. He cares about revenue. They have, they pay taxes to succeed. The, them, no question. Adams, the Brooklyn uh, borough president and native New Yorker, will become the second black man in history to become the city's mayor. And joining us right now is New York City mayor-elect Eric Adams. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor or Mr. Mayor-elect. It's great to see you. Um, it's great to see you again. Let, let's talk about the message that you're trying to send to business. As you very well know, uh, the previous mayor had a uh, contentious relationship, and maybe I'm putting it politely with the business community. Uh, You've been meeting with lots of business leaders over the past several weeks and months now. What are you trying to tell them? Well, reset, Uh, let's hit reset. You know, we understand that we did not have a good relationship. Uh, When I sit down with CEOs and they state uh, that they have not uh, met with the mayor here in a city that we call ourselves the Empire State, how don't we engage with those who have the empires here? And when we hit that reset, uh, the resources, the expertise, uh, all of that information can be used to help people uh, move out of institutional poverty. And I think it's an important relationship. Big question uh, among investors and uh, a lot of folks who are watching this program this morning are taxes, taxes in New York City, and also the potential repeal of uh, SALT. Uh, those salt taxes. Um, there's a big divide in the Democratic Party over these issues. Where do you stand on them? The reality is uh, that salt hurts New Yorkers. Salt hurt me as a taxpayer. Uh, and I'm not the one percenter. I'm a blue collar um, mayor elect. And I think that we have to look at repealing salt to help those everyday New Yorkers that are impacted by this. One of the big issues uh, that all New Yorkers are now confronting is some of the issues around uh, COVID uh, vaccine mandates and the police, firefighters and others wondering how you're going to work with them, um, whether you think that the mandate should be in place, whether you think extensions should be granted. Where do you stand? Well, the, I said, stated this on the campaign trail uh, that, you know, I don't want to, you know, Monday morning quarterback the mayor. He has the obligation to address this issue. What I believe he has failed to do appropriately is to sit down with the unions, the leadership. I use the term credible messenger all the time when I was campaigning. The leadership, they are the credible messengers for their rank and file. And if this is something that I'm going to inherit in January, I'm going to sit down with them. We will come to a resolution. I reached out to some of the union leadership yesterday, and I'm clear that we will come to a resolution, and I'm hoping the mayor do so before January so that we don't deal with a public safety crisis that can come out of this. Mr. Mayor-elect, a lot of folks this morning are trying to read the tea leaves, trying to divine uh, what your win means on one end, what maybe Glenn Youngkin's win means, what the close race in, in New Jersey represents. Do you have a takeaway about all of it? I, you know, I sat down the other day with a group of mayors in a, a program, and I'm hearing the same thing. Uh, we must understand that being progressive means being practical. I use the example all the time here in New York. We're talking about closing Rikers Island, the building. How about closing the pipeline that feeds Rikers Island? 55% of the inmates have learning disabilities. 80% don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. Yet we are spending over $30 billion a year in the Department of Education. 
And if you don't educate, you will incarcerate. So the question becomes, if we want to be progressive in our policies, we must be practical and help people on the ground, clean our streets, pick up our garbage, educate our children, and have a safe city that we can build on. You mentioned educating our children. And of course, the other big debate uh, in New York has always been about charter schools. Uh, how, how swiftly do you think you're going to, to move on some of those issues? Right away, we're going to hit the ground running. And in January, we're going to stop the, the adult dialogue of charter schools, public schools, parochial schools. Mothers and fathers want their children educated in a safe, clean environment. That is what's important to me. You know, the role of government is not to continue to have these battles after the elections uh, are over, but to how do we come together as a city and put in place real policies, giving mothers doulas so they can learn the important foundation of a child before they get into school, bringing back the joy of learning and the support and the resources inside the classroom. Uh, we're going to do some practical things uh, to turn around our educational failures. Uh, Mr. Mayor-elect, we've had a, a number of big tech companies um, buy up uh, some enormous real estate on the island of Manhattan, as you as you know well. Uh, what they have done less is do that in places like Long Island City and Queens and elsewhere. And I'm curious how you think about that. Do you want that to change? Uh, there's a lot of folks who, who look at the number of tech companies who come to Manhattan and say, that's a great sign of just how great New York is doing. We don't need to provide subsidies or anything else. But then others who say, no, 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 that's just the rich getting richer in Manhattan. You, got to, you haven't reached success unless you get them moving to other parts of the city. It's so important. New York City is not Manhattan Center. Uh, it is uh, the four other outer boroughs as well. And I am looking to develop those outer boroughs. In East New York, we have an industrial park. Uh, we can do some great things with technology there. In Brooklyn, we had a 356% increase in startups. Uh, here in Brooklyn over a 10-year period. Uh, I have a welcome map, map out for all of my tech startups. It's important to diversify our income here, not only on real estate, which now I pay 51% of our taxes, but also uh, Wall Street. We need to diversify that more, and our tech industry is a way to do it, but we must build a pipeline. Those young men and women in NYCHA housing, they should have a pipeline to employment. I'm hoping these tech companies will buy into my uh, 100% paid summer internship program so that our children can get exposed to the tech industry and to buy into uh, building out my job application where we can match the jobs that are open with people who are seeking jobs. So I say, let's bring our tech industry here so we can create the partnership to hire people into a middle-class living in the city. Okay. Eric Adams, um, thank you for joining us this morning. Congratulations on the win. We hope to uh, continue this conversation on Squawk with you. Uh, over the next several years, because there's going to be a lot going on in the city and a lot going on with business. So thank you. Yes, it is. I just want to be a GSD mayor. Get stuff done. <laughs> Get stuff done. Take care. Hard to not be behind that. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Next on Squawk Pod, the time has come. COVID vaccines for kids. On deck, Dr. Scott Gottlieb on why more parents are getting on board. I think the fact that this is a 10 microgram dose as opposed to the 30 microgram dose being used in the older kids is going to provide an added degree of comfort to parents that it's a lower dose. All the details right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square, I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And a big moment in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. The government signing off on doses of Pfizer's vaccine for 5 to 11-year-old children, Meg Perel. joins us now with the details. Hi, Meg. Good morning, Joe. So the CDC director signing off last night after the advisory committee met for six hours and voted unanimously in favor of making this vaccine available to kids. The CDC is saying in a statement last night that COVID vaccines have been among the most intensively studied vaccines in history and will continue to be so uh, also for the kids vaccine. They note that the vaccine for children will help protect them, but also reduce disruptions to in-person learning and help curb transmission more broadly. And guys, this was just a really effusively unanimous vote. We talked with one of the advisory committee members, Dr. Catherine Paling, a pediatrician, after the vote about why they voted the way they did. Here's what she said. There was a lot of discussion among the people who were voting and sharing that, yes, we are vaccinated. Our children are vaccinated. My nieces and nephews are vaccinated. And we made that decision after reviewing all the data in the safety uh, and the vaccine side effects and decided that the risks were there. And so we want to make this vaccine available for all families. And guys, now 28 million kids become eligible. Some of them started getting the first vaccines last night, like this little guy in Hartford. Did it hurt? Yeah, it doesn't hurt. I can feel better and just relax more. Uh, just amazing footage, seeing how this is rolling out. Now, this morning, we're hearing about children's hospitals getting up and running. I think this guy does a little dance. That's awesome. And uh, a lot of parents looking for these uh, appointments now, uh, finding them on pharmacy websites. They're finding them through their pediatricians. Some schools are setting up clinics. Vaccines.gov is the big government uh, hub for finding these. That is not yet up for kids, but we are expecting the broad rollout to be available next week. Becky. Hey, Meg, I, I will ask you, as the parent of someone who is under age five, um, what does this mean for, for kids who are uh, you know, under age five at this point? And what does that mean for their parents? I have asked this question of the FDA, Dr. Fauci, Pfizer CEO, and that advisory committee member from the CDC yesterday as a parent of a three-year-old. 
Um, Pfizer CEO said yesterday they're expecting data for kids two to five by the end of the year, kids down to six months uh, in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, he did say, as Dr. Gottlieb has told us, the FDA is looking for more safety follow-up data. So we're not sure about the timing for that. Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA has said it'll be a few more months. So we're going to be watching that very closely. Meg, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Joining us right now to talk more about the timeline for getting children vaccinated is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is the former FDA commissioner. He's also a CNBC contributor, and he serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And, and Scott, this is a, a moment we've kind of talked about for a long time. I guess the question becomes, uh, what will the uptake be? Interesting that it was unanimous vote. This is not the same court of, sort of discord that you saw going through the FDA and the, and the CDC when it came to booster shots. Um, but parents have seen rising concerns, I think, since June in just about every survey that I've seen. Yeah, and it was a pretty strong recommendation from the CDC as well. They didn't say children may benefit from it. They said children should get vaccinated between ages 5 and 11. I think the uptake could be more brisk than what we're anticipating. We saw about 50 percent of kids aged 12 to 17 who are eligible to be vaccinated get the vaccine. I think that there's an assumption that you'll see less uptake among the kids ages 5 to 11. I think the opposite could be true. You could see stronger uptake, in part because I think the lower dose is going to be reassuring to parents. I think the fact that this is a 10 microgram dose as opposed to the 30 microgram dose being used in the older kids is going to provide an added degree of comfort to parents that it's a lower dose. And so you could see pretty brisk uptake. If you look at the surveys right now, it's showing anywhere from 30 to 40 percent parents say they'll definitely get their kids vaccinated. When you look back at the surveys of children between the ages of 12 and 17, you saw lower estimates in terms of the parents who said that they would definitely get their kids vaccinated at the outset of that period of eligibility. So it's a pretty good starting point right now. I wouldn't be surprised to see more than half of the kids ages 5 to 11 get vaccinated eventually. I, I had seen some numbers just watching in the UK, and it looked like this age group, the 5 to 11, is the age group where you've seen the biggest incidence of cases still occurring. Probably makes sense because that's where nobody's vaccinated. Um, but that's one thing parents point to when they say they don't want to get their kids vaccinated is that, look, it, it's probably not that dangerous for a child that these are younger kids and they're not going to be worried about it at this point. What would you counter and what have we seen in the UK? Look, it's, very, it's clearly less dangerous in children um, than it is in adults. And thankfully, if kids were affected with COVID at the same rate that adults are, this would be a whole different ballgame. But we still see kids getting into trouble with this virus. About 8,300 kids between the ages of 5 and 11 have been hospitalized with COVID. We know that from the estimates that the CDC did, if you vaccinate 1 million children between the ages of 5 and 11, you'll avoid about 53,000 hospitalizations. You'll avoid about 130 cases of multisystem inflammatory syndrome. You'll avoid about 75 ICU admissions. So there still is a lot of morbidity in children and young kids from this disease, and we still see children dying from it. Um, it compared to other diseases that we vaccinate against, there's a lot of death and disease being caused by COVID in children ages 5 to 11. With 42 percent, those numbers just showing how many of the 5 to 11-year-olds have already had COVID, are we reaching a point where once vaccination starts, you could be looking at herd immunity among this group and among the general population at this point? Where, where do we stand? Yeah, the seroprevalence data, so data drawn from normal blood draws, where they just look at blood draws of kids who go into the doctor for routine um, blood draws for other conditions, show about 38% of kids between the ages of 5 and 11 have had COVID. That's probably a high estimate because it's a skewed population, people who are interacting with the healthcare system. But assuming somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of kids ages 5 to 11 have had COVID, you know, if we could vaccinate up, upwards of 50% of the kids, there's obviously going to be some overlap, but we will be getting to levels where you'll have enough immunity in the population between adults and children 
children that this isn't going to spread with the same velocity. Right now, probably somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of Americans, including children, have some form of immunity, either from prior infection or through vaccination or both. If you look at the U.K. right now, about 90 percent of people in England have some form of immunity between vaccination and prior infection. And what you're seeing in the U.K. is you're still seeing the virus spread, so you don't have true herd immunity. But there's a very strong decoupling between the cases that are happening and hospitalizations. You don't see the extreme death and disease from this infection anymore because most of the people who are getting infected probably have some level of immunity. A lot of the infections that are happening are probably reinfections or they're infections among healthier people who've chosen to go unvaccinated. Hey, Scott, can you speak to the business leaders who are watching this morning about um, what return to the office looks like? A lot of places have already returned to the office. Are masks necessary at this point? Are masks not necessary at this point? I ask because I think part of uh, getting kids vaccinated was part of trying to get uh, people back into the office to change this dynamic. We're obviously seeing much lower levels uh, of COVID than we have uh, in the past. And I think you're starting to see a relaxation of those things. I don't know if that's prudent or not. Yeah, look, I don't think we've done a really good job defining what endemic COVID looks like, what life with this infection is going to look like once a good portion of the population has been vaccinated. A lot of people have been exposed to the virus, but we're going to have to grapple with that pretty soon. I think on the back end of this Delta wave, and this Delta wave isn't done with us. We're now seeing a pickup of infections in the Great Lakes region and in northern parts of the country. But by Thanksgiving, we'll probably be through most of this Delta wave. And on the back end of this, prevalence could be pretty low. We could see, you know, 10 to 15 cases per 100,000 people per day on the back end of this Delta wave. And in infection levels will, will drop even lower as we head into the spring. So I think when you're reaching those levels, you're starting to think about lifting all these mask mandates. That we're certainly going to be at that point probably sometime at or shortly after Thanksgiving, after this Delta wave has coursed its way through the population. Look at the South right now. The South, you look at states like Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, which had devastating Delta waves. Um, they're down to about 10 cases per 100,000 people per day or less down there. That's close to levels we were at last summer. So those are pretty low levels. The prevalence is pretty low. So your chances of coming into contact with this virus is pretty low in those states right now. I think we're at those levels nationally, and we probably will be there at some point this winter. I think at that point, you're looking at lifting this mitigation. It's going to be hard for some parts of the country. People have gotten accustomed to the precautions, and it's going to be hard for us to go back to interacting normally again. But we're going to have to figure out how to live with this virus. It's not going away. How much of the, of the places where it's prevalent right now is because in the north it's really cold? A lot of people are indoors there. It was the opposite in the summer. You know, it was so hot in places like Florida, you'd have a lot of people inside at that point and maybe more outside now. Or does it have nothing to do with that? No, it probably has a lot to do with that. As people move indoors and start congregating in confined spaces as the weather cools, that's going to be more conducive to spread. Look, this has been a highly regionalized epidemic all the way through. Um, the South had their Delta wave. We've seen it now spread to the Midwest and the West and the mountain states. They were having a pretty dense Delta wave. It seems to be subsiding. Now you're seeing cases pick up nationally because the Delta infection is moving into uh, colder parts of the country, northern parts of the country that are more populated states. So what looked like steady declines in infection seem to be plateauing right now. Um, it's really just the Delta wave moving around the country in a highly regionalized fashion, as this has been all the way through this epidemic. This epidemic has been a largely regionalized epidemic all the way through, with the exception of last winter, when we had a confluent epidemic across all parts of the country. Dr. Gottlieb, I was looking at the numbers out of China, and they are taking, they've taken the zero tolerance approach where they shut things down immediately. They've started doing that again as you're seeing numbers pick up. But when you look at the numbers as reported, it's hard to imagine that that's really 
the level of cases that they're talking about, something like 97,000 coronavirus cases that they've had through the whole country in a country of more than 1.5 billion people and 4,600 deaths. I mean, are these numbers to be believed? Have the severe shutdowns that they've done really helped to that extent? And, and if that's the case, how many people there still are potentially able to be exposed? I mean, the, the, the countries where you saw big outbreaks early on had some sort of immunity, not herd immunity, we haven't reached that, but the more people who have gotten it in the past, the less li- likely you are to get shut down in the future. I just, I have a hard time making sense of the numbers you read there. Yeah, look, we've said all along, long, paradoxically, a lot of the countries that have done really well against COVID to date are very vulnerable to the infection going forward, because not only have they not had a lot of infection, and China's one of those countries, really the only part of China that had a lot of infection was the Hubei province, and estimates put the infection rate there anywhere between 10 and 20 percent. So even in the Hubei province, you didn't have widespread infection. But they've also deployed a far less effective vaccine, uh, and they, they haven't so far deployed an mRNA vaccine, even though they have one accessible to them. So the, their population that's been vaccinated is probably less protective against this Delta, um, Delta variant as well. So they're a more vulnerable population right now. And there's other countries like that is, that also are in a similar situation where they, through a combination of a lack of prior infection, the fact that they've deployed less effective vaccines, they've left themselves more vulnerable to the infection. Now, we are more impervious here in the United States as well as parts of Western Europe. Um, we're, let, we're, more, we're more, more impervious to the infection in part through the hard way because we've had a lot of infection. So there's a lot of immunity in the population um, from prior infection. I, I ask because I wonder about international travel and how confident you should feel when you are gathering either in places where they've had lower outbreaks or with people from the same countries have had lo- lower outbreaks and they don't have mRNA vaccines yet. Yeah, well, China's still maintaining a lot of restrictions on foreigners coming in, and that, has, that might have to do more with geopolitical uh, issues right now than just purely concerns around COVID. But certainly when you're traveling in Western Europe, I think Western Europe has had a similar experience to the U.S., and there's parts of Western Europe that probably have more immunity in their local population than we do at this point. Certainly the U.K. is that way. Um, estimates, the seroprevalence estimates are that about 90 percent of the population has some level of immunity to COVID, either through vaccination or through prior infection. Really, the only pocket of vulnerability in the U.K. are the children. They haven't done a really good job rolling out the vaccine with kids. And so that's where the infections are happening right now. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Uh, It's great to see you. And uh, we'll have you back very soon. Good to see you. Thanks a lot. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, let us know. You can send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This 
podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.